Hi, everybody. In today's episode of Sales Stories Raw and Real, I'm talking to Brent Cubis. Brent Cubis was the global CFO of Cochlear up until recently. He's had a 35 or 40 year career in managing and developing teams that run financial functions in businesses, very large businesses, including some time with Kerry Packer. Brent's perspective on how to sell ideas through organizations are really, really powerful, as is the perspective of how he manages his financial teams to a range of different organizations who are trying to sell them new products or new services from a tender perspective. Some really great stuff in here, a very different one compared to some of the other episodes we've had. I hope you get a lot out of it. I certainly did. Enjoy. Sales Stories, Raw and Real is a podcast series designed to help people in business development, whatever their level, by learning from the experiences of others. We'll be talking about the salespeople they've met, led and worked with and share their insights into what we need to do more of and less of. You'll hear the very best and worst of people's experiences to help you recognise the traps that we've all fallen into, get through them and out the other side, having learned what you needed to along the way. G'day, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm talking to Brent Cubis from a different angle, as uh, one might expect from a, a sales stories, from a raw and real perspective. And that's because Brent comes from the other side. And I mean that most respectfully. The dark side. <laughs> the dark side. Brent, um, Brent studied uh, business at the University of New South Wales and moved into accounting. He, he did his professional year and has spent the last 30-odd years in a range of different organisations running their finance functions. Most recently, he's been the CFO of Cochlear from an international perspective, and I thought it would be a really, really useful conversation to hear from him how, firstly... Uh, he sells ideas internally. And then secondly, and more importantly, trying to understand how big organisations like his run successfully, how business development people need to, need to sell to them, need to approach them from the ground level, moving through the various stages, depending on what we're selling and to who, uh, and just get his insights onto that. So, g'day, Brent, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Charlie. From the yeah. dark side. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. And uh it's always good to, my, my father was um, a salesman and so I've grown up with sales so I know how important sales is. And yeah, right. My brother actually went down that route. but um, I, I, I was going to ask you that later so yeah, let's come sure. back to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just to start with Brent, can you, can you tell us um, from a, a career choice perspective when you're 18 or 19 years of age, what was it that attracted you to the, um, a career in finance yep. and what was it that kept you there for so long and what was it? So three questions. What was it that made you so successful? Uh, thanks, Charlie. I think, look, I always liked reading the Fin Review growing up at, at home yep. and um, always had an interest in, in business, you know, doing economics and so forth at school. And I like to see how businesses grew. And back then it was people like, the, you know, the Murdochs and the Packers and so forth I was lucky to work with later on. So just learning how they, they grew their businesses and what they looked for, and I, I always found it really interesting. So and I took that really into work. Yeah, and right. um, and then since then, I've always liked the good thing about being a, you know, the CFO type of thing. You can actually move across industries really easily. Yeah, that's you right. know, a P and L on a balance sheet is always a P and L on a balance sheet, no matter where you are. 
Yeah, a little bit different. Sometimes the manufacturing might be different to say media or, or non-for-profit and, and or a big shopping center like Westfield and so forth. But it is more. It's still pretty much this, you know, same kind of approach all the time. So, yeah. And um, and I've always just like helping businesses grow. Yeah. Right. And, and and also develop teams. Yeah. So I think that's that's what I've enjoyed doing the most. And so you've been in finance the whole time, really. Yeah. In the in the finance role, if you like. Yeah. Uh, you know, after. So you've stayed there. So stayed obviously, there. there's two parts to that. I think is is um, you obviously enjoy it and you're good at it. Yeah, so, I like it. Yeah. So, what what was it that you really enjoyed? I would say it's just basically it, it is um, the key to you know a business. At the end of the day, businesses need to give a return to their shareholders typically, and um, it's nice to be able to work in business and have fun and so forth. But at the end of the day, you do have to give a return to your shareholders or your stakeholders, whoever they may be. And I just like trying to help improve that, and whatever that might be, whether it be driving sales or, or top revenue. Or improving the, you know, improving the bottom line through more efficiencies or saving, reducing waste. I like the the shareholders and and the distinction you made with stakeholders, and I'll, I'll come to come yeah. back to that. Yeah. About uh, twenty years ago, I found myself in a business, and I was kind of the the sales manager, for want of a better term, in that business. And I learned really early on uh, in that role that uh, I had someone, a couple of people who were in the finance role that weren't very good at it. And then I found somebody who was. And uh, I used to think about a finance manager as um, it didn't really matter if if I, I was in a boat and I had a really good engines and I was going in the right direction, I was in a really fast boat. If that boat had a leak in it or multiple leaks, then it was going to sink well before I... And, and that's how I think of finance because there's a lot of good business out there that are run very well um, Sales-wise, or very very well operationally, but but miss the finance function yep. and and cash flow is a little bit like oxygen. Yep. Without it, you die. Yep. No, it's very important. And at the end of the day, they are often catching everything and trying to put it all together. Um, sometimes you get stuck with all the problems too. You know, yeah, that's just, right. You know, something which is, and you know, in, in, as we've seen in the last 18, 12 to 18, 12 months or so with COVID, it's 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 um, that's where rubber hits the road sometimes and finance often picks up a lot of that workload because it can be pretty tough. Yeah. You know, I've lived through um, the GFC was probably the toughest, right. much harder than what we're seeing with COVID, I think, depending yeah. on the business. But credit who, just... Who were you with in 2008 with GFC? Um, I, we'd sold, um, I mean, we just sold Channel 9 and for $6 billion and, and Okay, um, so you were working with the Packer family at that point. Yeah, and, yeah. We, and, and we got out at the top of the market, 2006-07, right? Yeah. And James could see that because Kerry had passed away about that 15 months before. He could see the impact the internet was going to have on his businesses. So he saw that well in advance, but Kerry would never sell it. And so um, after we sold that for $6 billion, um, the private equity partners wanted me to put some uh, money in of my own and the forecasts were just too high. So there's no way we're going to make that. So I said, no, I'm out of here. And I went to a little um, fund manager thing, which was a public company at the time, and it all, it all blew up. Credit just died up. Yeah. Our credit, our facility was taken away by the bank. I won't mention their name. But that was, that was pretty hard to go and find $100 million overnight. Uh, for you know, a company which was you know, only had a few hundred staff, but it's still that was their lifeblood. Yeah. And then um, asset values were dropping really quickly, so you had to sell everything. So it was really, a, and the the major shareholder denied the values, and it was really tough. Yeah. Tougher than I think that COVID has been. So, yeah, it's interesting. I, yeah. I'm just trying to cast my mind back where I was, and I ended up, um, funnily enough, I lost my job. 
Yeah. At the end, of, uh, at the start of 2009. I mean, the banks um, have been much better this time around. Yeah. Much more considerate, I think. And we've seen that with the rebound in the economy. You can see the data coming out today with the GDP. It's, it's been amazing. So yeah. we're lucky in Australia. It's, yeah. it's been okay. We, we sure are. Would you say um, that, that, that that 2008 period was, was one of the more defining moments in your financial yeah. career? Yeah. As um, I can remember talking to, you know, my career highlights were his one-on-one meetings with Kerry Packer and we'd have just, we just talked for an hour and a half, yeah. monthly meetings with him. And um, just and he he would probably listen 80% of the time. Really? And ask really short and simple questions. What, what, what were the ones that, that the you ones, remember? Yeah, and one, I think the one that one that really stands out is um, he, he'd really like to understand what was happening at nine and things like that because he was he was getting a bit sick at that stage and that was what used to give him a bit of a thrill and if the ratings were going well and, and so forth. But he would, when we were doing a bit of a cost-cutting exercise across the group and we were trying to get all the PBL and CPH, which is private company, all together, and all these people had their own fiefdoms and he said, the way I, I, I said, we're, you know, we're tackling this cost savings, we're spending about a billion dollars across the group excluding people costs, which is quite a lot. All these, you know, hundreds of suppliers, and, and we're trying to just, you know, simplify it all and, and get some efficiencies out of it. And um, he said, "Son, I wouldn't actually say it's it's trying to save money or anything. I'd just go in and say, I, I don't mind spending money. I just hate wasting it." And ever since I heard that, I've done that anywhere I've gone. I said, "You know, I, I'm the first. I love to spend money if it means we're going to get a return, mm. or we're going to see some improvement, or double our income, whatever it might be. Uh, but I also hate wasting it." So. Kerry would often, you know, you saw it with his sports rights. You pay over the money for that because he knew it was money well spent. But he'd turn around and say, what are we wasting money on, I don't know, mobile phones or something? You know, he just yeah. would go and pick something in particular. And he always had a pretty quick answer sometimes. If you thought you knew the answer, he'd, he'd challenge you on that. So, <laughs> so you, had to know your, you had to know your stuff when you're dealing with him. But that would definitely, I learned an enormous amount from him. But I think the you do tend to learn a lot more in tough times. Definitely. I think you'll yeah. learn more in those times. Like I've learned more in that, that GFC period, surviving that, selling those assets, the importance of cash flow, staying on top of all your working capital, um, getting on with your banks. And then we also last year with the um, career, with the COVID at Cochlear, and this is all public information, you know, we lost 80% of our revenue overnight. So our revenue was about $1.5 billion per annum, $125 million bucks a month. That 125 went down to 20 million bucks. Now our running costs per month are about 90 million bucks. So we we were looking at the abyss, thinking, how are we going to get through this? We had a terrible legal case go against us, which we go for 20 years, which cost us another 400 million. So it was it was a perfect storm. Yeah. So we had to raise equity. We had no choice. Cockley had never gone back to the market after it floated in 1995 to raise equity. So that was the first time to go back to the market and do a capital raise, and. We had a board meeting on the Sunday, or just four of us on the Sunday night, the chairman, the head of the audit risk committee, myself, and the CEO. We had a board meeting the next day, and we said, right, if this happens, we need to go this route. And it did happen, so we had to go to plan B. And eight days later, we'd finished raising $1 billion. Wow. So that was a that was pretty full on, but it, you also learnt a lot during those times. So. Can I pick up on two, two things there, right? I'd like to explore a little bit the... Uh, the cost-saving initiatives that you had to represent back into Kerry's business. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, we've talked a little bit, my, my world is about selling products or services, but I think you in both selling Kerry's cost savings desires into mm. his business mm. and selling um, whatever you sold, hope, in other words, for Cochlear to raise 
one billion dollars. How how did you how did you do those sorts of things? Well, I think it comes back to a lot of the principles that you have in your business, Charlie. With um, I think you know the the like side is making sure people can um, get to feel they can trust you and what you 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 have their interests at, at heart as well. Yeah. So in the case of Kerry's one, you know, we're probably about thirty different businesses across the CPH and PBL. Um, you, know, you know, you had the crown which is all going through the terrible things at the moment tv magazines ticket tech you had the snowfields you had um chemical you had a whole lot of things so we had to approach everyone on for instance energy contracts or travel and or different categories where you had big spends everyone had their own supplier so trying to get them to all agree on one supplier took a lot of convincing because everyone had long-term relationships they might be getting kickbacks who knows what was happening so it was a really hard thing to convince them all to come on that journey and in the end, we might save 10% as a group. And if we're spending 100 million bucks across a group in one particular expense category, that quickly adds up, right? So it was really a matter of bringing them on that journey and trying to demonstrate to them what was in it for them and be able to also demonstrate to them that they would get better service. It wasn't always about the costs. It might have also making, been made always getting the best and latest product or, or more um, add-on benefits or services um, not just about the, the cost savings as well. So if you could demonstrate, look, you're going to be the first person to get the latest thing out of this particular supplier, or you're going to be the first in line whenever something comes out or whatever it might be, then that might have been enough to get them over the line. So it, and getting their input on it as well, making sure everyone was involved in the tender. Have we heard everyone? Okay, are we all aligned? Okay, let's go for it. And often at the 11th hour, someone would try and pull out. So come on, no, we're all in or out. So, and that, that took a lot of convincing. But once you got a few runs on the board and you chose low-hanging fruit first, demonstrate that it could work, you would actually um, see some results. I like how you call it cost because my, my people run around trying to sell on price. And you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. It's not the main thing when there are other things at play and, and you're hearing it from the top of the, the CFO chain here, so... I'll just stake my put my fork in. There. I think it's really it's not a. I would say you know you'd rank rank the there'd probably be ten things on a, on a tender or something, and price might be two or three. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say the um, the products number one, the reputation of the company, and um, other clients that they've had, often introductions uh, that someone else uh, has been really happy with them, and they introduce you. That's usually pretty big. Yeah. Uh, referrals. Referrals. Relationships. But just. But also being, t- being made to feel as if you are given first choice for something or we've got the latest thing here, we're giving you the first chance to use it, yeah, stuff yeah. like that, making them feel special. Yeah, um, yeah, but, well. and, then all, and then once you win the business, staying in touch with them. Yeah, sure. And I think it's really important that they follow up and they every six to 12 months. They might, and, and often it's a case that everything's fine and, and that's, that's enough. But it, you don't, they don't just leave you and, or, or hand you over to a, a junior burger who doesn't really you know, know, understand the relationship and so forth. Yeah. So I think trust is really important and, um, uh, and making sure that you stay in touch. It's amazing how often you'll just – people would just get business by doing the occasional phone call and uh, whatever it is. It could, be, it could be recruiting. It could be the, the waste management tender. It could be the IT software, you know, hundreds, of, lots of different um, goods and services. But it, they might just stay in touch and it could be that just they call you on, on, on a, at the right time, one time when you – actually, we are thinking about doing it in the next few months. Mm. Give me a call in, in March or whatever yeah. it might be. Fascinating. Brent, what, um, what, what about the, the situation you found in yourself one day, one Sunday? Was it last August or 
August or September? With Cochlear? Yeah. No, it was February last year. Oh, it was February last yeah, year. 12 months when, ago. When you had the, the need for capital raising. Yep. Yeah. So the COVID hit us. The thing about Cochlear was that it, uh, it started in China. Yeah, that's so right. So we're in 180 countries around the world. Yeah. And because we could see it happening in China and we came out with a profit announce, we'd never come out with a downgrade before. So we had to say, right, first time we've done a downgrade in our profit forecast because of the impact of China. So we took the China business out for the second half. That was about a 50 million hit to 40 million hit to our P&L, uh, which took us out of guidance. So we had to upgrade, update the stock exchange. Mm-hmm. And then three weeks later, we came out with another one and we had the legal thing happen at the same time and we just dropped guidance altogether. Mm-hmm. And we said it's too difficult to forecast. Plus we're going to do their capital raise at the same time. So on that Sunday night, literally I was doing a cash flow forecast, working out our going concern and our ability to stay afloat. Yeah, right. Um, and when your business is burning through $90 million each month in costs, it, it, it goes pretty quickly. <laughs> I bet it does. So how did you, from a from a like, know, and trust perspective, how did you go, Did you was it institutional investors that you raised that yeah. billion dollars with? So, yep. so, there's, so there's, there's like, know, and trust in the selling of that. And there is. And that, was, and that, that all came back to our investor relations manager. And she had always stayed in touch with the key institutions, particularly in the United Kingdom, yeah. um, who... Um, we had a lot of loyal long-term shareholders, but stayed in touch with a couple had gone off the register and hadn't come back on because they thought we were too expensive as yeah. a share price. Okay. And then when we knew we were going to be issuing some capital, um, we could go to those people. And it would be it was at a discount. You've always got to issue a little bit of a discount when you do a big capital raise like that. They were the first ones to jump on board, and you needed to get a minimum amount away before the underwrite before the um, investment bank underwrote it. And so that was the, that showed the importance. Just like your clients stay in touch with their um, clients, it showed the importance of our investor relations manager and the CEO to stay in touch with our stakeholders. Sometimes you'd be going to see investors or potential investors, and they would never buy any shares. But by staying in touch with them, seeing them once a year in the UK, you built the relationship, and they could hear the story, and you didn't have to explain it again when it came to doing the capital raise. Because we had to get that done. The capital raise happened in 24 hours. So. You, <laughs> You did all the work, you did all the I, the information, the due diligence, and then we hit the, hit the phones. That's, that's an extraordinary um, experience. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and it happened. In, in, we started in Australia, and the, and the take-up by the Australian institutions was not high, so then we went to the UK, and thank God for that. Um, the UK are probably a little bit more aware of the health sector and the importance of it as, as a sector and the long-term um, story, and they weren't so caught up on the on the short-term concerns about COVID. Yeah, right. But if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have got that, that away. So, <sighs> so that was like, and, and you know, fortunately, as you saw the results of Cochlear last week, we got through it. Yeah. So they've actually managed to pay off that debt now, and they've got cash in the bank, and they can think about expansions, and they didn't, no staff were made redundant. We kept all the R&D staff, which was important, because we could come out stronger than our competitors. Yeah, yeah, so. that's a that's an amazing story, and um, it'll be interesting to see five years ahead. Yeah, um, and just the you know the critical nature. You had, you you had a you had a great big hole in your boat, mate. Oh, and, that, and, that was pretty that was, really really quickly. That, that week were, or two was pretty full on. <laughs> you were really really quickly adding all arms to the deck. Literally. And how quickly it can go? Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah pretty, that's it's, right. Cochlear is a pretty recession proof business. Yes, because people always need the hearing done, right? Yeah. But when you can't do surgeries, which is what happened, yeah, sure, it dried sure, up. Sure, so. Yeah, it's uh, like you said, the perfect storm, mate. It was. Storm, no, mate. it was. It was. Brent, um, how should individuals or organisations approach? businesses that you may have worked in 
that had a big same procurement. How, how should how should they approach your people or yourself? Do you think? Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of the businesses I've been, whether it be Cochlear or Westfield or whatever, or uh, so that, nine, to, to be clear that you've, they've been in very large organisations, yeah, eh? big ones. Yeah, yeah. You often have a procurement function, yeah. and there might be three people or so in, in that procurement area, and they would be looking across all the different spend categories. I would say the main thing to when you're approaching those people is to they're always you know you, you'd be responding to a tender. Um, you, it'd be really important to listen to everything that the client or the customer wants. It's amazing how often you would get a tender and, and they just didn't hear you. Yeah, yeah. Um, just simple stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the the customer references are really important, but demonstrating that you're backing yourself, that you feel confident that you can deliver the you know, a lot of the time will come down to cost or, or, or the product that you say you will be able to deliver. Uh, and you might even share some of that, share some of that success. I think sometimes you would a, a company would win a tender because they're just a little bit different in the way they might have approached it. Yeah. And they might be prepared to share, take some of that risk on themselves. And that risk might be in wearing some, some of the cost themselves, but also sharing the upside. So if they could demonstrate some savings or whatever it might be, then they might share in those savings. Yeah, like. great. Really creative. Really yeah, just a bit more lateral thinking. A bit more lateral thinking, not yeah. just, right, this is what we're going to provide and you can pay this. Um, or we're going to, it used to be $100 and we're going to give you a you know, 10% discount type of thing. So, okay, how about we give you a 5% discount, but we'll also share in the rewards if you can actually see the upside. We'll help you with the sales or we'll help you with marketing. This used to happen in Westwood quite a lot when tenants were struggling and they, um, and they needed some help. Often you would go along and help them with their visual displays or you'd actually sit down and look at the way they were ordering and so forth. Um, you get you get a retail expert to sit with them because it's in their interest to make sure the retailer survives as well. Mm. So it's it's just about approaching things a little bit differently and, and not just thinking, just responding purely on price. Another important thing, to, depending on the industry, is ensuring that you can deliver. Yeah. Um, and that was important to Cockley with uh, manufacturing and supplies yeah, and so forth. Yeah. Um, there's nothing worse than saying that you can deliver and then they don't deliver. And that would be applicable in building sites and, and yeah, things like yeah, that. Definitely. You know, a lot of yeah. things like that. Can hold so up production. Reliability is pretty important. Yeah. Um, quality of products as well. And, and backing yourself um, in terms of quality, that if you if there is a problem with it, that you're prepared to fully refund it. And that gives you confidence that they know that they feel confident about the product themselves. So, yeah, sure. So I think it, it's not always just about the money. It's, no. it's, about, it's yeah. about thinking creatively, backing yourself, and then referrals are really important. But as, you, as we said, start listening. It's amazing how many tenders were coming and they hadn't answered, half the, they hadn't answered the questions. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and don't be afraid to go in, um, if you are responding to a tender or something, don't be go, afraid to go and see them and ask them about it mm. because usually they want to talk to you about it and help you through it. Yeah, that's right. Because and, and if they want you to get the business, they'll really help you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You mentioned earlier on, and this is where I was going to bring your brother in, how, how he's in, he chose the, 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 the right side, not the dark side, <laughs> um, and, you, and your father was in it, as, as, which I think is a, it creates an awesome dynamic for yourself <laughs> because you've said all along, well, during this discussion and others I've had with you over the years is that, you know, revenue is important. You've got to get that bit right. So, so how do you, how do you view sales and what sorts of conversations do you get involved with as a CFO in these organizations to increase the level of sales and or margin? Yeah. I, I love, obviously I grew up with sales. It's, it's the lifeblood of any business. You know, normally most days, most businesses I've been in, 
if you're not looking at the daily revenue report, you're definitely looking at the weekly revenue report, comparing it against the same week last year or whatever it might be. Looking around the world at different regions, you know, there might be a problem, an economic problem or the oil, some, something happening in Russia, whatever it might be. So you're very aware of what's happening around the world. Um, usually if you read about something on the front page of the news, it's going to imp- it's not, not good news. So it means you've got to go there and look, oh, there's a, there's a coup in this country, whatever it might be. So, yeah. so you're very conscious of, of the impact of sales and so forth. And, um, and, and, you know, it's your lifeblood and I love it. And I would always go on sales calls anywhere I am in any business to understand the customer more and what makes it work and learn about, just learn about it and just go on the road with them and say, well, what annoys you? How can we make your job easier? And they might say, what the hell are we going to fill all these stupid forms in? Or this, or this gives me this shit. So you, you, you try and help them make their job easier so they can sell more. Yeah. So I think it's, I think a good finance person will do that with their with their sales team and and really understand the business model. I was going to say to just to, to yeah. learn more to understand and meet the customers. Yeah, yeah. And it's really important to meet because the customers. Because the customers would love that too. Yeah. You know, and be, a lot of businesses have been where you go along and you meet the customers, whatever whoever they might be. And I love that part. Yeah, good. So I think it's really important. What is it that you loved about it? Just just seeing the end result of of, of the company you're working for and the product. Yeah. And, and actually with the with the so final customer. It's the action behind the numbers. I mean, cochlear it? was the ultimate. Seeing seeing the implant in a child and, and seeing the the impact there. But often your main customers would be the doctors. Yeah. Sure. And hearing hearing it from them about what why they like the cochlear product compared to the competitors, it usually came down to service. Yeah. Right. Okay. And and they had the best product. They had the most reliable product without a doubt. They had, they had sixty-five percent market share, even more in some markets. Yeah. And but they not only had the most reliable, high-quality product, but often it was the service that got them over the line. Yeah, right. We've worked most of our way through these questions, and I, I'm just absorbed so much of this, and I hope you have too, people, because there's gold here. I don't want to finish quite yet, Brett. What I'd like to do is just talk a little bit about your experience with uh, Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. Yep. Because you talked. Um, about the cochlear capital raising, which is shareholder based, and and um, but life uh, lifehouse was more uh, as much about not for, well, it was not for but about stakeholder management as well. Yeah, can you can you share your views of like no trust just around stakeholder management? Yeah, and that, that's it's a it's a very it was a very interesting um, place to work. Um, it was a cancer hospital which was built off the back of Chris O'Brien's vision from when he worked in the states of having a one stop shop if you like. Mm-hmm. And Chris was a great salesman. He convinced Kevin Rudd to put $150 million into that hospital. Yeah, right. And then the cancer he, center. He, he was a doctor, wasn't he? Chris O'Brien was yeah, a doctor. He, he was, was the one on RPA. Yeah. So he was the um, ear, nose and throat surgeon who operated on cancer. And ironically, he ended up dying from brain cancer yeah, himself. Yeah. So at the end of the day, he was also a very good salesman and convinced Kevin Rudd to put in $150 million. They'd already raised about 20 or so, $30 million. And we needed about another 40 million or so, 30 million to build the hospital. And what we did was, um, and Lang Walker was the head of the building committee at the time. And, you know, yeah. he, he, he said, you've got to go for the full height. You know, we'll work out the money later. I said, well, it's not back in the 80s where you can go and sign contracts and not worry about it. Like, so, um, and being a um, charity, we didn't have, you know, no one's prepared to guarantee things and so forth. So, and we only had a 40-year lease. We'd known the land. So that yeah. was another factor as well. But we ended up doing a social bond to raise another 20, you know, 20 million or so, which enabled us to do the top two floors 
um, and have them as shells. And then the idea is you go back and raise money from people, donors later on to fit out the floors. Because yeah, we can save $20 million by doing those two ah, floors okay. at the same time. You don't have to bring a crane along later on and do all the scaffolding. Can you imagine building two floors on top of a ho- an operating hospital? How yeah, hard that would have been? Yeah, yeah. So that saved us $20 million, but they had two empty floors at the top. And then we would go back to big donors and then they would feel like, like they do in America. And that worked really well. But it was quite a novel way of doing that. It was the first social bond in Australia. And um, we raised that and, and we had to offer a 6% interest. It wasn't guaranteed, so there's a bit of risk. But we ended up raising quite a bit of money from that, which enabled us to do the top floors. But, but the stakeholder management there was quite tricky because you've got a very involved board who had come from all walks of life that Chris had appointed. And they, some from government, some from private industry, Langwalk, people like this. So mm. that was quite tricky. Yeah. Then, you had, then you had New South Wales Health. Then you had the cancer, um, you know, the local, the previous cancer centre. So all these stakeholders, in many ways, it was probably the trickiest board I've ever been involved in, in, in or, or worked with, because mm. of the stakeholder management. So yeah. that was quite hard. But then in the end, we opened that hospital, and it's it's been a great hospital for cancer um, patients to be in one place, not have to go to different places. Did he see? Did he see it finished? No. No, but his wife Gail is still on the board, yeah. and she was a key part of the. And she's always been on the board and so forth. And yeah, right. she was awarded her AM just like Chris was um, about two years ago for the work. She'd extraordinary, done. So. extraordinary generosity of spirit. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, bro, we've covered a lot, mate. Thank yeah, you. Thank you, John. I'm a bit I'm blown away to tell you the truth. Um, I think it's great what you're doing. I think it's important to um, for any of your customers to apply the same as they do with their own you know, their own customers and building the trust and, and getting to know them so that they like you and keep coming back to you for um, business. And you've had, I've had to do that all the time in my life with internal partners, if you like. Yeah. Um, and it's um, the same philosophy that you do to win over customers. You've got to do for you to win over people internally um, because a lot of people don't like change when you, when you come into a new, into a new company. So um, so I think it's a, it's, the, it's a good motto that you have there and I think it, it's nice and simple and it works. Thanks, mate. Brent, what's, um, what's next for you, mate? So um, you're now looking around for a yeah, couple of just, NED just, roles. and non-executive director roles and, and helping out um, a couple of the tech companies with uh, IPO raising equity and so forth yeah, as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the hot space at the moment um, yeah. in, in technology and IT and some of the amounts of re- amounts they're raising the, on the revenue multiples as opposed to profit multiples, I just don't understand it, but that's what people are willing to pay. That's that's change, mate. Well, what I will say is if anyone out there is is looking for um, uh, a really, really good, really sharp director that, that has extensive experience in finance, then Brent's your man. Feel free to look him up um, on LinkedIn or give me a call and I'll give you his, his contact details. But... Thanks, everybody, and and most of all, thanks, Brent. Thanks, Charlie. Well done. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, be sure to subscribe in your podcaster so you don't miss a future episode. And whilst you're there, I'd really appreciate if you could take the time to rate and review the podcast. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Charlie. Charlie.